Hey, we want to thank you for listening today to a sermon from Edwards Lake Church. And we hope that you recognize the message of God as we open his word together and examine his incredible life-changing teaching. We pray that this message will challenge you, motivate you, or touch you in some way. Let's open the Bible together. Uh, go ahead and open your Bibles to the book of Acts. Uh, we will be continuing on in our series. We are trying to take a little bit larger chunks these days so that we will uh, be able to finish the book of Acts this year because uh, we're halfway through the year and we are not halfway through the book of Acts. So let's, uh, uh, we're going to try to move a little bit faster uh, we covered the story of Cornelius last time in chapters 10 and the first half of chapter 11. So we'll try to finish 11 and do most of chapter 12 this evening. Uh, it's a lot of bits and pieces, little chunks of story here. Uh, each of them really deserve their own sermon, but my wife tells me I shouldn't do that. So we'll, uh, we'll try to summarize these stories and get to uh, the main ideas and hopefully some application uh, as we work through the different pieces of the story. One of the things that amazes me about this point in the church's growth is just how organically things are happening. Uh, if you look at the church and the way things are happening, uh, you start here in verse 19 and it talks about how the scattered Christians, the ones who have been scattered since the persecution of Stephen, they are still going about teaching everywhere they go. And doing so fairly effectively, it says that they've, they've made their way as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. So they have moved quite a bit of a distance away from Jerusalem, which is where we know the church began, and Samaria just north of that. And they are reaching all the way up the, the, the east coast of the Mediterranean Sea at this point. Uh, they're spreading. They're, they're, they're growing the church. They are establishing churches in different cities and different locations. And they're doing the job that Christians are supposed to do. You know, I wonder sometimes, looking at our modern church, if we were to face persecution, how we would handle that. What would it look like if all of a sudden, not a, you know, as we experienced last year, a, a shutdown of sorts, but a disbursement? What would that look like for us? If all of a sudden in our country, we were now criminals because of our faith, which is essentially what they were looking at here within the Jewish territory and uh, Israel. What would we do about that? You know, how would that change the way we worship? How would that change the way we live? How would that change our perspective on the value of our faith? I don't know, and I'm, I'm certainly not qualified to make any sort of accusation regarding what I think we would do, but I, I do worry sometimes. I'm thankful often to God that that uh, hopefully is not in our future as far as we can tell. Because I don't know that the immediate response to persecution, to a man being stoned in front of us for nothing other than preaching the gospel, I don't know that our first response would be, well, then I'm going to go tell someone else the gospel. 
And the reason I say that is because even without persecution, our first response isn't, let me go tell my neighbor the gospel. It is amazing to me. And I don't say that to guilt you. I say that to remind you how remarkable it is that the early church was willing to spread and to go everywhere they went teaching the word of God, even under threat of persecution. And they didn't just do it in their local place. They would find new places to spread the gospel. They would go places where the gospel had not reached at the risk knowing that they would be persecuted for that. And we're going to see that a lot in tonight's section of the book of Acts. Well, while they do this, you've got Barnabas, again, playing a role in uh, and solving problems. He, he is the great problem solver of the early church. They've gone about, and as they've gone about, they've primarily just been speaking with their Jewish neighbors because that's where the church began. But now that Peter has opened the floodgate for the gospel to reach the Gentiles, we've got these Christians who are scattered about joining in, and they're teaching the Greeks. They're teaching the Gentiles about Jesus. And we come to verse 21. It's chapter 11, verse 21. The Lord's hand was, dead, was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. News about them reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to travel as far as Antioch. When he arrived, he saw the grace of God. He was glad and encouraged all of them to remain true to the Lord with devoted hearts, for he was a good man, full of Holy Spirit and of faith, and a large number of people were added to the Lord. What you've got is basically the church in Jerusalem has said, okay, we're getting big. We're going to have to do something about this. We need to make sure that, that we have key people in place in different areas so that they can make sure that things are happening smoothly, they're happening without conflict, they're happening in a way that will be beneficial to the cause of Jesus. And so they send Barnabas. And we've already seen Barnabas multiple times through the story of the book of Acts. And every time we see him, what do we see him doing? Making things better. He makes things better. Uh, when we first meet him, he's giving of his own possessions to feed the less fortunate. We see him coming to the defense of Saul whenever we're all, you know, the church was scared of whether Saul was going to truly be an ally or whether he was an enemy in sheep's clothing. And now we see him being trusted enough to be essentially the liaison between the apostles in Jerusalem and this fledgling church up in Antioch. You need to go up there and you need to see what's going on. And he goes up and he's, he's, he's amazed that that the church there is growing and the church there is full of the grace of God. And so he stays there and he helps them grow. Barnabas steps in the gaps. New Christians come with a lot of confusion and baggage. They come with a lot of difficulties. There, there's a lot they don't yet understand. Can you imagine how much more difficult that is when they don't even have this? When they can't tell the new Christian, well, if you'll just turn over to 1 Corinthians, they don't have that. All they have are people who are inspired, 
along with people who pretend to be inspired. Barnabas is sent to be the voice of, of, that can be trusted as the church is growing there in Antioch. He is there to step in the gaps and make sure things happen the way they need to happen. But as he is there for a while, he realizes he needs help. And so you look there in verse 25 and 26. Then he went to Tarsus in search of Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught large numbers. That's how important that point is. He needs a co-worker. He goes to Antioch and the church is growing. And his, his thought is, I can't do all of this. I, I can't do everything that needs to be done here. And so it's interesting that what he does is he, he goes and finds a man who was chosen by God to be his voice to the Gentiles. He goes and finds a man who at one point was a persecutor of the church and now was a defender of the church. And he brings him to Antioch and together they work side by side growing the kingdom. I've been in multiple preaching arrangements in my, my short time as a preacher. Uh, I've been in places where I am the single preacher, no elders, and so everything falls on my shoulders to make every decision, uh, right or not. That, that's the way it often works in those situations. I've been in other places where I'm the only preacher with a group of elders, and, and they're good and bad that comes with that. I, I've been in places uh, where I shared the responsibility with another preacher. And I tell you, there's a great benefit to having a co-worker. Luckily, in some places, like I, I, I feel here, I've got four great co-workers because they remind me all the time, hey, Adam, you need something? What can we do? How do we step in? How do we do something? How can we take something off your back? You know, it, and I've been supported mightily. And deacons and members here who have done the same thing, I, I, I don't feel the weight on my shoulders here like I have in other places. But there is a camaraderie that comes with sharing the work and that's what congregations should do together. When you've got a preacher who goes into a fledgling group that is growing like gangbusters, and it, it's just, I mean, just new baptisms all the time, and people are coming in, and they need to be taught, and, and you don't even have this to, to grow out of. You've, you've got to depend on whatever's been revealed and what you do have written down. And, and, and I can imagine how, how stressful, how difficult that would have been. And so begins the partnership of Barnabas and Saul. It's a great blessing he has. And then you've got this next statement here. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. 
Much has been made about that statement uh, over the years. I'm sure you've heard lessons that talk about how name Christian was not originally to be a title as much as it was a derogatory description. You know, the early church was really as a subset of Judaism. Like you have the Pharisees that were known for their dependency on the law, and you've got the Sadducees who were known for their dependency on tradition uh, and, and temple worship, and you've got Christians who were known for their belief that the Messiah had come. They were just Jews. At least that's how the world viewed them. But at Antioch, they were no longer considered Jews. They were now considered something new. Now, whether the world meant it derogatorily or not, we know it's not a derogatory description. They were known for their Savior. Isn't that great? Now, I, I don't know that the term Christian means that anymore. I don't know that it carries the same weight and the same vivid description as a loyal to the Messiah as it would have here in Antioch. But Saul and Barnabas and the Christians there at Antioch were so devoted to getting out and sharing the message of Jesus and talking about who their Lord was that they became known as those Christ lovers. Maybe a modern term, modern, maybe the late 80s, early 90s term would have been Jesus or holy rollers or some kind of term that could have been used to talk about how you're different, you're weird, and you are way too committed to this thing over here. That's what they were known for. They were committed to Jesus. They were committed to the Messiah. They were committed to a Savior. I hope we're known for that. I hope we're known for loving our Lord so much that every aspect of our life is defined by our love for Jesus. When we make decisions, when we get up in the, way, uh, get up in the morning and think about the day we're going to have, I hope it focuses on what are we going to do for Jesus. When we have conversations with other people, I hope they know without any doubt whatsoever, this person loves Jesus more than they love anything else. They are Christians first. We use that term. You know what I don't like about what that phrase has become known as? It's become a denominational idea. We're Christians first. We're those people that, that aren't denominate. We are the undenominational denomination. That, that, that's not the goal here. The goal here is to be so identified with Jesus that people call us those Christians. That's what they had in Antioch. And I love that, that the work that Saul and Barnabas put into this church brought about that sort of devotion and reputation. And then you keep reading, they, they start uh, having generosity. And, it, and it's not generosity just for the church in Antioch, but Agabus comes and as a prophet, he predicts 
that there's going to be this great famine in Jerusalem and Judea. And so the, the church in Antioch, believing that this prophecy was true, start sending money now before the famine even happens. Isn't that pretty amazing? Have you ever thought about it? We, we are reactive givers. You know, I, I, have, I have been in many situations in churches where a need has popped up, uh, whether it be a local need or whether it be a, a foreign need. And, you know, the, a hurricane swept through Jamaica, and the church there, there are several people who have lost their homes, and uh, a collection will be taken up, and all of a sudden that need is melt, met very quickly. But we do that in reaction. Once the need happens, we rise to meet the challenge. And that, that's wonderful. That's the way it should be. We don't have an Agabus predicting for us events happening in the future. But can you imagine the greater faith it took to start sending money to Jerusalem before the famine even started? How much faith it took that this man is telling the truth and he speaks for God and God is warning us so that we can step up and help our brethren there. I love that. This church loved Jesus. And that's why they're called Christians here. You get into chapter 12 and you've got Herod who has basically decided he's going to start pleasing the crowds, pleasing the general populace by persecuting these Christians. They're well enough known by this point that people are aware of who they are and what they believe and that they are different than everybody else. And Herod decides he's going to start persecuting them, so he executes James with the sword. Well, when he saw that that made everybody happy, he found Peter. Why do you think he goes for Peter? Peter's the leader. And we don't like to think of him as uh, as the head apostle by any stretch of our imagination, but he is a predominant leader in this church. And so Herod arrests Peter with the intention of, of persecuting or executing him also. Well, that doesn't work well because God steps into the gaps this time and Peter is rescued. It says, verse 6, Herod was about to bring him out for trial. That very night, Peter, bound with two chains, not just one, uh, two chains, was sleeping between two soldiers while the sentries in front of the door guarded the prison. So I find this interesting. We've not really seen a lot of stories yet about rescue. You know, Benny gave an excellent prayer earlier, and he mentioned in his prayer about the, uh, the faith of Paul and, and Silas as they're rescued from prison by an earthquake as a result of their prayer. A, a great prayer, great things to think about in our prayers. We, we see this starting to happen here, but the fact that Herod treats Peter with such caution makes me wonder if those kind of events aren't already happening. That maybe some of those events happened not just to Peter and Paul and Silas, or, uh, you, but you've got others who are arrested and rescued. Because it, it seems pretty uh, cautious here, doesn't it? Peter's thrown in a prison. He's 
put bound up with two chain between two soldiers while there is a sentry of soldiers in front of his in front of the bars so that they can make sure he doesn't get out of there as if Herod expected that he might. Now that means one of two things. Either there is a, a precedent for Peter getting out or maybe Herod is aware of just how zealous the Christians are in this area and he's worried that the Christians might come in. I, I don't know. But he is extremely cautious with Peter, but it's not enough. Because suddenly an angel appeared and a light shone in the cell. Peter, uh, striking Peter on the side, he woke him up and said, Quick, get up. The chains fell off his wrist. Get dressed, the angel told him. Put on your sandals. And he did. Wrap your cloak around you, he told him, and follow me. So he went out and followed, and he did not know what, that, the an- that what the angel did was really happening, but he thought he was seeing a vision. As they passed the first and second guards, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened to them by itself. They went outside and passed, on, passed one street, and suddenly the angel left him. It's a great little movie clip, isn't it? Right here in the middle. I mean, did you see not just guards by, uh, by his cell, but now you've got... He's passing the first and second guards, going out of the city. Uh, the gates open by themselves. I mean, it's just like everything's just, just happening. Uh, Peter gets rescued. Peter goes back to John Mark's mother's house, uh, Mary, where the saints have gathered together and they're praying for him. Uh, we assume for him. They are praying fervently about something. I can't imagine Peter's not the topic. And so they're praying about it, and Peter, Peter shows up and knocks on the door. And of course, you've got Rhoda, the servant, comes to the door. She recognizes Peter's voice. Uh, because of her joy, she, she's so excited that she doesn't open the gate, but she runs in and announces that Peter's standing at the outer gate. They tell her, you are outside of your mind. But she kept insisting it was true, and they said it's his angel. Some of your versions will say it's his ghost. This story has always cracked me up because it it shows our human nature in such a real, organic way. They're gathered together to pray. And I would assume, it doesn't say this, my assumption is they are praying for Peter. They're in the city where Peter is arrested. Peter is arrested to be put on trial the next day and executed, and they are praying. And when Peter shows up at the door, what do they think it is? It's ghost. His spirit. Do they believe God's rescuing Peter? can't argue that they do. Uh, He goes, as soon as he gets out of prison, to his family, and his family wonders whether it's really him or not. Isn't that just like us? We will pray so fervently for a major thing, and, and then when it does happen, we can't believe it. 
why would we not believe God answers prayers? Why would we not believe that God can step in and rescue? Why would we not believe that God can, can answer and give us the, the, it, every single desire of our heart? God can do amazing things. And so that's what you have happening here. God does an amazing thing for these people. And it says there, verse 17, motioning to them with his hand once he got, gets in there because uh, they're amazed. He, he motions with them to be silent. He describes to them how the Lord brought him out of the prison. Tell these things to James and the brothers, he said. And he left and went to another place. And at daylight, there was a great commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. When Herod had searched and did not find him, he interrogated the guards and ordered their execution. Then Herod went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. Uh, I, I, I love that. I love that what you see here is that a church that, that prays and then God gives them the answer. I love that you see a church here who is uh, very... Uh, realistically shown as not really sure what to do with the fact that God did give them what they asked for. I love that the church here is willing to stop what they're doing to celebrate because God had given them the answers they had asked for. It's a great story. I'm always marveling at the things God can do for us. You look just a little bit later in the chapter, and you've got God taking care of Herod. Herod gets very angry. He, he gets very arrogant. And so God strikes him with a disease because he tries to place himself in the position of God, and he ends up dying. And historically, he dies of an awful, awful disease. Uh, here in the Bible, it describes it as he is eaten by worms. But the story that, that we have from secular record is that he is eaten from the inside out. He develops worms on the inside of his body, and they eat him from the inside out. And it is a, an awful description of what he dealt with. A couple of lessons from this sh short section of the book of Acts. One is God's work is never done. We, we have a tendency as God's people to, to think God has, will do amazing things and then God takes a break. And you never see that in Scripture. God doesn't take breaks. God, God is ready to go all the time. God is ready to get us busy. God is ready to, to, to see us work and to bless our work. And we need to be the kind of people who are willing to work like God works. And that's what you see the early church doing. You know, they could have justified for who knows how many reasons why it was best if they just stayed quiet for a while. Let, let's fly under the radar for at least the time being. But then once things have calmed down a little bit, maybe things will be more acceptable for us to get out there and preach the gospel. Or let's just go away from this place and, and we'll, try to, we'll try to go far, far away and start over. Maybe, maybe they'll be more agreeable there than they are here. That's not the way the early church worked. 
God gave him a plan. Start in Jerusalem, go to Samaria, and then the uttermost parts of the world. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And that's what they do. No matter what the consequences, no hardship they face, they do God's work because God's work is worth doing. And every single person did their part. Secondly, we need Christians that step in the gaps. There's always work to be done. Always. It, I, I can tell you this from my experience in the church this years. If there's not work to be done, it's because your church has already given up. And in that case, there's work to be done getting them to quit giving up. There's always work to be done. There's always something else. Let me, let me make that even a little bit more personal. There's always work you are uniquely suited to do that needs to be done. Are you a great organizer or are you a behind-the-scenes kind of person? Do you like to be out in front of people? Do you like to make sure that you are, 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 are tucked away where nobody knows you did anything? It, 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 great at crafting? Are you great at making things? Are you great at, at, at public speaking? Good with music? Are you good with people? Are you a good listener? I don't care what your personality is, what your skill set is, what you enjoy doing. There's always stuff that you, you personally, have to contribute. And we all need to see it as our job to be Barnabas's stepping in the gap. To be done, you should do it. I use this uh, kind of business phrase often whenever I talk about evangelism, but it works in this case too. Opportunity plus ability equals responsibility. There's ample opportunity, there are various abilities, and so all of us have the responsibility to step into the gaps. Sometimes the best workers need help to handle God's blessings. The hardest work there is to do in the church is to grow non-Christians into mature Christians. The hardest work that exists. You take somebody, we, and we get this wrong, we think our job is to get them into the baptistry. No. Our job is to get them back in the baptistry. Here's what I mean by that. Our job is not to get them to the point of salvation because now they've here believed, repented, confessed, and been baptized. That, 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 that's the beginning of our job. I'm not, I'm not dismissing that. We need to do that. But that is not a completed job. That's the first time they've gotten in the baptistry. Our job is actually to take them from that and put them back in the baptistry while they're baptizing somebody else. That's when we're done. That's when you have reached maturity. And honestly, once you get there, the work, still continues because there's more growth and more opportunities 
But that's, that should be our goal. Our, our goal is not to get people wet. Our goal is to get people trained. And if we would do that, we would look so much more like the early church than we do currently. When you do that, when a church is growing, when there's a lot of new Christians coming in to a church, that's when things get really, really difficult. I was talking to a preacher friend of mine recently uh, from down in Florida. And his church, I mean, he, he, they're, they were, they're down to like 30 people. 30. And he is exhausted. You know why he's exhausted? Not because of the 30 people. 30 people that are there, that are members, are mature, they're, they're strong, they're very well versed in scripture, they live good lives. The problem is they have somewhere between 50 and 60 visitors every single week. And in the work that he's doing, he is bringing in the community in such a way that they are, they're, 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 having people respond to the gospel and and he is having to stop going out and teaching because he has to stop and and train and grow and help those who are being baptized into Christ mature and that is a long process and that's the work he has found himself doing and he is not able to get to all of these other people who are coming in who are wanting to learn more and respond to Jesus because he's trying his best to grow the new Christians in such a way that he doesn't have to worry about them falling back out. Because the real work is not in getting people baptized. It's getting them to the point of where they're ready to, to baptize others. One of the great blessings about having a congregation with elders, we got men who can step up and do that easily. It's why you chose them to be elders. It's because of their maturity and because of their willingness to teach and their willingness to work with anybody who wants to hear the gospel and or anybody who has newly responded to the gospel. But I tell you, it, it, it's handling the blessings God's giving you, that really is the harder work to get done. I'll tell you another lesson you learn from this section. I t- see, see how the, each one of these could be a sermon in and of themselves. So, uh, I mean, uh, we need to be known for our Savior and nothing else. It, it is shameful to me that we are known as the Christians who believe they're the only ones going to heaven. And not because I'm ashamed of that idea. The reason we're going to heaven is not because of who we are or what the name is on the building. It's because we are trying to serve and love and have a relationship with God. And yes, it is the people who serve, love, and have a relationship with God that are going to heaven. So if you can find yourself being that person, yes, you are one of the only ones going to heaven. I'm not ashamed of that. What I'm ashamed of is that we have let ourselves be so redefined in our reputation that that's what people think about us. And they don't think, oh, those are the people who love and serve their God. Do you see the difference there? Oh, they're the ones that don't use instrumental music. No, we're the ones who love God. That's all you need to know about us. They're the ones who take the Lord's Supper every week. No, we're, no. And you know why we're known for those things? Because those are the things we've talked about over the years. 
instead of talking about the things that really matter. Do you love and serve your God? That's what we should be talking about. You know what the answer is to all those other debates? Why we don't use instrumental music? It's because all we're trying to do is love and serve God. God said do it this way, we're doing it that way because we believe that it's the best way to love and serve God. Why is it that we take the Lord's Supper the way we do? Because we love and serve God. But we've let ourselves get so distracted from what we really should be identified by and now we're, we're reaping the repercussions of that. Last lesson here, our, our worship should reflect our hearts. I see that in the story here, the way the church responded to Peter showing up at the door. They, were, they just were amazed. And it wasn't about, well, you know, tell Peter to wait out in the, in the foyer for a while. We've got to finish our worship. I, I've seen that before. I'll tell you a story. It's just going to put me over time, and I apologize, but i got to tell you this story. Uh, back in my early days preaching, I was up preaching, and I was preaching a sermon on, uh, the, I think it was on the lost sheep, that story there in Luke chapter 15. I know it was a sermon about sheep, but it was a story about the lost sheep. My, my, my mother-in-law and father-in-law will, will remember this story. So I'm up there preaching, and it, it's, a, it's a, you know, a, smaller building than this and and we probably have probably 50 members at that point so it you know it's not a large congregation and we're kind of spread out in the congregation but uh, I'm up there preaching about the lost sheep and I watch as this older lady in the back we had a lot of snowbirds come down in Florida winter visitors come down in Florida and, and she just kind of keels over in the pew just falls over I don't know what to do so I keep preaching I mean, got the sermon, keep preaching. Well, I watch her husband, and, and again, it's amazing. I'm, I'm still baffled by the fact that I could continue preaching watching all this happen. So uh, her husband is, is kind of like not really knowing what to do. So he's looking at her and then looking at, you know, look, and then uh, another couple uh, that was sitting near them get up, and they, they come over, and they're, they're trying to help. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I'm still preaching because, it's being handled, right? So I, I just, I keep preaching. It's a great sermon about the, I, I assumed, I don't know. I kept some people's attention. So they're in the back and they're, they're helping Miss Marie, was her name. Her wig has fallen off. Her, her jacket, it, it, you know, big wool jacket that she was wearing, it's come off and they're fanning her and they're trying to get her. But she's still laying down in the pew. I, I can't see her except they keep sitting her up and she keeps falling back over. Uh, and that, that's kind of the, the pattern we're going with. So... So her husband reaches up with his cane and he taps my mother-in-law on the shoulder. And she kind of shrugs it off because he was a bit of a jokester and, you know, I was talking about the shepherd. I'm still preaching, by the way. So I'm talking about the shepherd's cane. And, and she thought he was just being a joker, like, hey, hey, look, I've got a cane too. But finally he gets her attention. She turns around and sees, you've got probably four families gathered around Miss Marie at this point. Everybody in the front still paying attention because I'm still preaching. And uh, so they're back there shuffling around, figuring out what to do. My mother-in-law gets up. She walks around the auditorium, goes to the front left of the auditorium from my perspective, which is where my office was, and, and makes the phone call. I keep preaching. I'm like, they're handling it. We're good. I watch what's going on. 
Uh, it takes probably about five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten minutes. And all of a sudden, the paramedics come in the back door. I keep preaching. Like, I, I, I don't know what to do. So I keep preaching, and, uh, and the paramedics are there. They're being very respectfully quiet while I preach, and they're handling Miss Marie. And I see them start to pick up Miss Marie and carry her out of her pew and lay her out on the stretcher. I don't know if she's alive or not. All that's going on in my head is, well, in Acts chapter, uh, let's see, 5, uh, they, they just kept worshiping even though people were struck dead right there in the middle of their, of their worship service. So I, I, just, I, I do at that point say, you know, we probably need to pause and say a prayer for Miss Marie. And everybody in the front goes, what's going on? And they turn around. I mean, we've got a whole party going on in the back of the auditorium. And, and, and nobody in the front knew, but we stop and we pray. Shame on me. Shame on me. That I let our formula of worship take precedence over the need of my sister. We have to be not so committed to our tradition and way more committed to our God and to our brethren. And when there is a moment for celebration, let's celebrate. And when there is a moment for concern or worry, let us stop and take that worry to God. That's what we should do. It's not about the, 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 the formal pattern that we're supposed to be doing as much as it is about the purpose of what we are doing. And I love that whatever they were doing, there in Acts chapter 12 at Mary's house, they stopped to celebrate with Peter. Shouldn't we be willing to do the same? Now, I'm, I'm not by any stretch saying that, uh, you know, on a Sunday morning, somebody gets up and said, hey, I got a promotion, so we cancel worship for the day so that we can go out and party with the fella. That's not the case here in Acts 12 at all. In Acts 12, the answer to their prayer appeared, and so they celebrate that God still answers prayers. And we should be willing to do the same. Right now, Jody has gone to the hospital. He's not feeling well. He's in a lot of pain. Uh, I know he took chemo while at camp last week. He's that committed to those kids and to what's going on over there. And I don't know if he's just exhausted from camp. It could be something that simple. But I would like to stop what we're doing right now to pray. Bow with me. Our Father in heaven, we are... Honestly, we're worried. Not because we don't know that all of this is in your hands. We trust you, Lord. We know that in every case, in every way, as long as your will is happening, it is the right thing. And God, we pray for that. We pray for your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray 
that things happen here in a way that would bring you glory, in a way that would bring promotion to your kingdom. But God, we do worry about our brother Jody. And we worry about his sickness. We worry about him and his family. And God, we ask for your healing. God, we ask that you help him. Make him whole. We love you, Lord. We know that you will do what is right. But in, my, in our minds, in our hearts, we truly believe that his healing would be good. We know that it would be good for your glory. And we know that it would be good for the spread of your kingdom. Because he is such a great worker. And he is so devoted to you and your cause. We know he is so devoted to his family. And so, God, we ask for his healing, not just because we want it, but because we believe it would be good. Heal him. Make him whole. Make things good for him. We ask for your strength and your peace on both him and Karen and Joshua and Rebecca and Joda. We ask that you will that you will bring us all peace. Thank you, Lord, for being a God we can trust in, even in difficult moments. And it's through your son's name we pray. Amen. The same God that can bring him healing, the same God that can heal you. If you've got sin in your life or something you're struggling with, if you've got concerns that, that we can help you with, we want to pray for you and pray with you. And we ask that you will let us do that. He makes us right again. And he can do that through, for you through baptism. If you need the invitation to get your life right, to be baptized into Christ, we ask you to come forward and let us know how we can help you as we stand and sing this song. Thanks for listening and studying God's Word with us. We want to help you draw closer to Jesus as your Lord. If you feel some need as a result of today's message, whether that be a need to seek God's salvation or you are just in the need of prayers, please reach out to us. You can find out more about us, including contact information at edwardslakechurch.org. If you want to continue to open God's word with us, please check out other sermons on our podcast or come visit with us at Edwards Lake Church anytime you can. Thanks again, and we pray God's blessings for you.